Good morning, everybody. It is so great to be here at Pathway. We love this church. Um, Pastor Mark, thank you. You have been so warm and welcoming towards us, and we love Marty and Julie. So it's so good to be here with you. So many of you ladies I know from our um, ladies' retreats. I've been there the last two years with you, and that's been super fun. So, um, And I want to introduce you to my husband. Darling, will you stand up? Show them how cute you are. (laughs) Um, We've been married for almost 43 years, and we have four adult married sons and six grandbabies and another one on the way. So we're super excited about that, and he is the love of my life. So glad that we have done life together. It's been fun most of the time, right? (laughs) So um, as you may know, I'm a therapist by trade. I spent five years, a little over five years on the Gateway staff as a pastor. I love doing that. I'm now back in private practice, and I do some leadership groups with Dr. John Townsend. And I heard a, a joke the other day from a psychologist, which you don't hear very many. Well, maybe you guys hear therapy jokes, but nobody tells me therapy jokes. So I heard this joke, and I thought I'd share it with you. So how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? What would you guess? Anybody got a number? Uh, Yeah, okay. (laughs) Five, there we go. We've got different numbers. Well, it only takes one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. (laughs) And isn't that the truth? Like, we humans tend to dig in our heels a little bit when it comes to change. Change is hard for us people to make. And um, we need help doing that. And the thing I love is that Jesus said, I'm never going to ask you to do something that I won't do with you. Isn't that good to know? So today I'm going to talk to you about freeing me, because I know you're in a freeing me series, and I'm going to talk to you about freeing me to grieve. And that may, may sound like, what does freedom, what does grieving have to do with freedom? And I think grieving has everything to do with freedom. Because if we have sad stuff locked away in our hearts, it's going to immediately affect our amount of freedom that we experience in our day-to-day living. If we've got stuff that we have pushed down that we are sad about, that we are mad about, that we're disgusted about, that we're disappointed about, that we're hurt about, that will affect our lives. And thankfully, Jesus gives us a model of what to do with our hurt love. I'm so thankful that he does. Because he told us, we live in a fallen, broken world, right? This is a fallen, broken world. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, which I think Adam and Eve represent you and I, that I like to think, oh, I wouldn't make that choice, but guess what? We would all probably make the same choice, wouldn't we? And so because of their decisions that impacted all of us, we live in a different world than the world God had in mind for us. God wanted us to live in paradise. I think we have to remember that. And that Jesus came to destroy that which got lost and broken and stolen and destroyed from us. He wants us to live good lives. But oftentimes we just don't know how to do that. We don't know what to do with our disappointments. We don't know what to do when we experience a death of somebody we love, which I know this congregation has just lost a very significant and important person to all of you. The death of Laura has been very hard, I'm sure. And then I know you have personal things going on in your own lives, whether it's just the losses of a relationship, 
maybe a fight with your husband on the way to church today. I was just thinking this morning how grateful I am for Ron because, you know, he prays for me. He speaks over me. And sometimes I think we forget how important you men are. You know, men, you are so important to the women around you. Scripture says that husbands, you can speak words over your wife and that give her life, that wash her. So men, I just want to say thank you. I'm grateful for my husband. And I know so many of you men have such a powerful impact on the women around you. And we forget that in the culture we live in because our sitcoms make fun of men, don't they? We make fun of them and belittle them. And and I think we can communicate that you don't have a role. But in God's kingdom, you men have a very significant role. The words you speak over your wives and your daughters and your daughter-in-laws and just the women around you can make a huge and lasting impact. So thank you, men, for being those kind of men that speak life over the women in your life, right? Because a lot of times women have experienced some hurt from men, just like men have experienced hurt from women. So today we're going to talk about what do we do when we have experienced those kinds of hurts. Thankfully, Jesus is our solution, that he said we will suffer, but he also came to heal the brokenhearted. I love Isaiah 61, where he says, I came to heal the brokenhearted, not the brokenheaded, because most of us want to think our way through our problems, don't we? And not that thinking is bad, but now we know from neuroscience that our emotions and our thinking are all located in this amazing organ called our brain. But when we get our heart broken, where do you feel it? Do you feel it right here? Yeah, you feel it right here, unless you're among the walking dead. And you're walking, but you shut down your emotions a long, long time ago, which is a very dangerous thing to do. Neuroscience is now teaching us that not dealing with your emotions actually is not good for you. It has a boomerang effect. If you don't deal with the pain that is in your life, it'll come around and hit you from behind and only add to the pain that you already had. So it's so much better if we can learn how to deal with it. But the thing is, most of us don't know how to deal with our pain. So I'm going to talk about what we do with that. So let me pray for us first, okay? Father, thank you for this beautiful group of people. Thank you for how you love them, for how you passionately pursue their hearts, that their hearts matter to you. Their hearts are beautiful and precious and their hearts matter. Father, I pray that you would give us open hearts today. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that our hearts would be tender and open, and we would receive your word for us today. Thank you that you feed us. Thank you that you give us living water. Thank you that you like to create wide open spaces for us to live in and that you invite us to live in your unforced rhythms of grace. It's in your precious name we pray, amen. You know, another one of my favorite scriptures is he comforts those who mourn. Isn't that powerful? I think because we don't mourn, we don't receive the comfort we need. And so we humans tend to self-medicate our pain. We tend to watch 
too much TV just to numb out or eat too much chocolate or ice cream or some sort of comfort food. A lot of times we don't need mashed potatoes. We need the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But instead we go open up the pantry or cook something up and eat comfort food thinking that's going to make me feel better. And it does while it's going down. But then as soon as it's gone down, it's not comforting you anymore, is it? Because God wanted us to be people who know how to grieve so that we could receive his comfort. Did you know that grieving actually recalibrates our lives? Grief will recalibrate you. But we kind of have to figure out how to do that. Last week, This last week, I had a client come into my office, and she sort of stumbled through the door, and her husband put his hand under her elbow to guide her in and help her find her seat. And I thought, hmm... Something's going on here. She's only 28 years old. And so I asked her, I said, well, what are you guys here for? How can I help you? And the husband said, well, I think we need some help with our marriage. And I said, well, what's going on in your marriage? And he said, well, I think we have a problem with alcohol. And she looked at him and said, well, I don't have a problem. Do you have a problem? And how many times in life, instead of dealing with our staff, do we just want to transfer it on to somebody else? I don't have a problem. Do you have a problem? You have the problem. And if I can just help you work on your problem, I'm going to be okay. We do that, right? We hope that if I can get you all fixed up, then my life's going to be great. Because you're no longer going to be causing me problems. If only it worked that way, right? So I said to the husband, well, do you drink too much? And he said, well, no, I actually stopped three years ago. I stopped drinking altogether because I could see how destructive it was for us and for our marriage. So I said to her, how about you? And she goes, no, I don't drink much. I said, well, tell me about your childhood. She said, well, I was adopted when I was 11 years old from a Russian orphanage. Well, that registers with me, right? I'm like, oh, she's got some trauma. She's got trauma brain. And so I asked her, well, how did you end up in a Russian orphanage? She said, well, when I was nine, my mom died. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's a really hard loss for a nine-year-old girl to lose her mommy, isn't it? Well, where was daddy? Well, he wasn't around much. I said, well, so how'd you get to this orphanage? She said, well, I told my teacher and my nanny that I wanted to go live in an orphanage. So I could just imagine this little girl in a nine-story apartment building, and she's on the seventh floor. She's all alone in this apartment most of the time, so much so that she asked her teacher if she can go live in an orphanage. And he said, tell me about the nanny. And she goes, well, she wasn't really my nanny. She was just a lady who lived on the ninth floor who would check on me. I'm like, wow, this little girl is all alone. So I tried to give her space to tell me about her drinking problem. But her denial structure was really built. How many of us can identify with her, right? 
where we build our denial structure, we take a hold of minimizing our issues, and we make them sound like they're no big deal. She said to me, oh, but the Russian orphanage I was in was awesome. And I said, well, what made it awesome for you? She said, well, we'd go outside and eat snow. And I'm like, that? I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't make it awesome. You found a way to survive. But you've got all this pain and trauma inside of you. And we've got to find a way to get it up and out. She wasn't ready to do that. So I finally said to her, I think you have a problem with alcohol. You stumbled on your way in the door. And I can, I can smell it. She said, well, I drink vodka. Vodka doesn't have a smell. And I said, I know that smell. That's the smell I grew up on because my dad was an alcoholic. And it has a smell to it. Right? So here's the thing. I know that a client like this has a ton of grief work to do. But most of us do. She's got big traumas. But some of us have some little traumas that we've just minimized or lived in denial about. We're like, oh, that's no big deal. Oh, so what? Oh, I'll get over it. We beat ourselves up and say to our, how many of you do this where you say, why aren't I over this yet? Right? You ever say that to yourself? Yeah, or to somebody else? Like, you need to get over that. And I'm sure that you have tried and they have tried. But the truth is, until we've grieved something, we don't know how to get over it. Right? Because it's in our hearts, and it's hurt our hearts, and it's wounded our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Isn't that a powerful scripture? Like whatever is in our heart, those issues are going to come out of our heart. Those issues are going to dictate how we live, how we think, how we feel, how we behave, how we treat ourselves, how we treat others. It's a really big deal. Above all else, guard your heart. I remember when I first read that scripture, I thought to myself, well, God, aren't you going to guard my heart? Is it my job to guard my heart? God, I thought you were going to do that for me. Imagine the disappointment I felt in God because he hadn't always guarded my heart. And I'm reading the scripture and he says, you guard your heart. And I'm like, oh, I have some responsibility over my own heart? That was a life-changing moment for me. If I have responsibility for the condition of my heart, I need to live differently. I remember it was Halloween night in 1974, and Ron and I got married right out of high school. And so we were young. And my dad, when we told him that we wanted to get married, my dad sat across from the table from the two of us and said, you two will never make it, and I will end up supporting you. My dad was an attorney. He made good money. He probably could have done that. But Ron and I looked at each other, and without saying a word we decided he will never support us and we will make it. And so we found this place to rent. It wasn't in the greatest neighborhood. 
As a matter of fact, it backed up to an alley. It was kind of scary, but we called it our honeymoon cottage because I was thrilled to be married to a man who was not a rageaholic and he wasn't abusive because those are the things my dad was. Alcoholics can be... Well, I've heard there's, there's some happy drunks, but my father wasn't one of those happy kind of drunks. He was a mean drunk, and he was highly unpredictable, and he was terrifying, and he was scary, and he could be fun one minute, and then he could be raging the next, and fists would fly, and his belt would come off, and you never knew what was going to happen next. He was scary. And so Ron and I had gotten married, and it was Halloween night, and we were going to make it so we didn't even buy a TV. I don't think we had a telephone. This is before cell phones where we use the old kind, you know, that dial. You kids don't know what I'm talking about. And I was home alone because Ron was taking classes out at the community college. It was raining cats and dogs. It was an Oregon night, and it can rain in the valley of Oregon. It was pouring. I was scared because it wasn't really a safe neighborhood. And I thought, if something happens, I don't even have a phone, right? And so the neighbor guys who I knew really well were some college guys, and they just thought it would be so funny to get all dressed up like scary monsters and come over and scare me. So they did. They got all dressed up, and they looked really scary, and they knocked on on my door, And they accomplished their mission. They scared me. I was terrified. And you know, if any of have any of you ever been triggered? Where, you know, one memory leads to some memories behind that memory? And before you know it, you feel like a terrified ten year old little girl? Well, that's what happened to me on that night. They're scaring me terrified me, and it brought up all my other memories of the times I had been terrified in my life. And so they left, and I don't think they knew how badly they had upset me or they would have felt really bad. I was good at hiding things like that because I was taught to look good on the outside when maybe I was a mess on the inside. And so I remember laying on my bed, and I was crying. And all of a sudden, I said out loud, this is all my dad's fault. I was recounting all the things that were hard. And this is all my dad's fault. You know, it's such a good idea to listen to ourselves, isn't it? Do you ever listen to yourself? Do you ever pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth? Like, do you listen when you go, oh, I hate my job, I hate my job, I hate my job, and go, maybe it's time to find a new job. Or, wow, My mother's really demanding, really demanding, and she yells at me, and she's bossy, and maybe now that I'm 30, I could think about doing something besides listening to mom yell at me. You know, they say the problem with us Westerners is terrorists will make threats. It's just we typically don't believe them because we think the world is a great place. We forget that there are evil people because there are evil people. And we say things like, can't we all just love each other and just get along? And it's like, that would be ideal, wouldn't it? But the problem is there's evil in this world. And we live in a fallen, broken world, so it doesn't always go that way. But I heard myself say, oh, it's all my dad's fault. And don't you just love how good God is? What a good dad he is. And he said to me, Nancy, do you want to become an adult? 
And I was offended by that because Ron and I were working really hard to be an adult, be adults. We're working three jobs. We were paying all our own bills. We were, we were being adults, right? And I had my list. I started, you know, giving my list to God. And I guess he wasn't impressed with my list because he asked me again. He said, Nancy, do you want to become an adult? And this time, the Holy Spirit, thank God for the Holy Spirit, right? I'm sure it wasn't me, but this time, the question, the Holy Spirit softened my heart. And I was humbled by the question this time. And I said, yes, Lord, I want to become an adult. And he said to me, then you have to stop blaming your dad for everything. And you have to start owning your own heart because your heart is precious and your heart belongs to you. And if you don't guard your heart and deal with what's in your heart, nobody else will. So will you guys put up the graphic for me? Thank you. So I'm going to talk to us about what we do with our heart love. And, you know, obviously we have two sides on this graphic and one side is kind of like what not to do with your heart and the other side is what to do but the truth is our hearts are complex and a lot of times we can find in our hearts if we listen to what what is in there we can find that oh I've got some bitterness I've got some resentments you know I do a lot of marriage counseling And I can have a couple come in and they have circled their way around that right side where they are at the hatred and violence for each other. Where there's physical violence going on. There's emotional violence in their relationship. There's verbal violence in their relationship. And I'm like, tell me what your relationship was like when you started. Oh, we were so in love. We were so crazy about each other. We adored each other. We just couldn't wait to get married and spend our lives together. I'm like, what happened? Well, I know what happened. Somebody hurt somebody. Somebody said something that hurt the other. And so they started collecting their resentments. And they started collecting evidence like they were building a case that this person I'm married to is a horrible person. And see, she's just like her mother. (laughs) And see, he's just like his father. And see, I can't trust him or I can't trust her. And we collect our resentments. And that's what I had done with my dad. I had been collecting resentments for 18 years when the Lord asked me if I wanted to become an adult. And then our resentments turn into bitterness. And we know we've stepped into the territory of bitterness when our cup is always half empty. Do you know people who can make lemons out of make lemonade out of lemons? Do you know people like that? And then do you know people who can man, they just take lemons and they just pulverize them and it gets worse? Yeah. Those are the people who have bitterness in their hearts. And again, all of us can have some bitterness in our hearts, right? Do you ever say something and you're like, ooh, that Nancy, that sounds a little bitter? Like, I pay attention now to what's coming out of me. I try to stay aware. Have I collected, am I collecting resentments? Is my cup half empty? Have I gotten just a little bit negative? 
because it's really hard on our neurochemistry when we live on this side of the, the cycle here because bitterness and resentments are hard on your brain. And then our hearts move from there into hardness of heart. And I love what Hebrews says to us. I mean, God's like on repeat when he's saying to his children, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Boy, we can have a tendency to be just a little bit rebellious or a lot rebellious, right? I mean, I don't know about you. They say that middle children can be more rebellious. Well, I was a middle kid. So, and Ron was too. (laughs) So, you know, we sowed some of our wild oats and we could be a little rebellious. But do you ever pick it up in your own heart? Like, oh, I'm just being a little rebellious here. I'm being rebellious towards God or I'm being rebellious to the people God has put around me. And God says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. And here's a temptation for we humans. We tend to lean towards hardness of heart when we are in the midst of a trial, when we are in the midst of the desert we're going through. When things are hard or we find ourselves in a tribulation or a wilderness, that's when we are tempted for our hearts to go hard. I bet many of you have prayed for Laura to be completely healed of cancer, right? And you've watched Butch and their children go through suffering and loss and trauma. And this is where our hearts can grow hard if we don't get the miracle that we wanted. We are tempted to go into hardness of heart because it didn't go the way we wanted it to go. And we don't understand it. And you know, typical when, typically when we're in the middle of a wilderness, we can't see the trees for the forest, right? We can't make sense of it. And we try, and when we can't, we can get really bitter and resentful. So he's, he warns us over and over and over in this passage in Hebrews, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We have to watch out for our tendency to be rebellious and to harden our hearts. And then next, when we have hardened our hearts, then it's just easy to hate. And you know, I think there are some things we should hate. When I was healing from some of the traumas of my childhood, God said to me, I'm going to give you a season to hate. Because I was one of these people, because my dad had done so much rage, I swing over on this other side, and I'm like, I'm never going to do rage or anger, because it destroys people. Isn't that what we do? They say, if your parents are alcoholic, you'll probably swing over here and never touch this stuff. And then the next generation will swing back over here and be heavy drinkers. And then the next generation, we just go from one extreme to the other, don't we? Right? When God wants us to find health, it's here. Not neither one of these extremes. Health is here. So God said to me, I'm going to give you a season to hate, but he wanted me to hate the things that were done to me, not hate my father. There's such a difference. Like, I think we are to hate evil, right? Right, y'all? It's okay to hate evil. Evil is ugly, and we should hate evil. But there's a difference between hating evil and hating people. 
There's a difference between me hating my father's violence and hating my father, isn't there? And then when we go this way, then we can find ourselves moving into our own type of violence. Even if it's violence that others can't see, there can be violence in our hearts. So I'm so thankful that Jesus gives us a model for what to do with our hurt love. And again, he said, you will be hurt in this world. So Isaiah, he says it like this. Jesus understands our grief, right? And we know this from Isaiah because it says, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. Isn't that good news? And he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I love what this passage is teaching us, that Jesus isn't far away. God isn't far away and separate from your sorrows and grief. He totally understands your sorrows and your grief. He is a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. And because he is, he teaches us what to do when our heart gets broken. He's our model for how we handle this. In Matthew 26, 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. He's with his disciples. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him his three best buddies. This is part of of what Jesus is trying to teach us. If you are in a hard place, you cannot do this alone. Get some people around you. Get in the middle of the family of God and raise a flag and say, I need help. After last service, a woman came up to me and said, I am always the happy one. I am always here for other people. But in the last week, my grandfather died, and my father committed suicide, and my brother had open-heart surgery. And she said, I am grieving. And she said, one of the saddest things for me has been that I'm there for other people, and right now I can't be. And right now I need other people to be here for me. You know what? If we don't grieve our own sorrows... We cannot be there for other people. We will never give to other people what we will not give to ourselves. If we just deny our grief and our sorrows, whether they're big ones or small ones, whether your kitty died or your father committed suicide, if we do not grieve our sorrows, then we will not be able to comfort others as we have been comforted. Because we can't give to other people what we ourselves do not possess. And that's why when this dear woman is in pain and sorrow, she's used to being the one who always gives to people, and now she needs people to give to her. But she's not receiving a whole lot of that. And I think it's because people don't know what to do because we don't grieve our own griefs. And so when somebody else is having a hard time, we go, ooh, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to move away. Have you ever done that? Like, ooh, they're going through a hard time, I'll just back off and be their friend when they're all better and fine because I'm super uncomfortable with their pain. Don't you love that Jesus is not uncomfortable with our pain? Don't you love that he does not move away from us but he moves into us when we are in pain? Don't you love that about him? I do, that he, 
He grieved profoundly before he could go to the cross. He went to the garden and he grieved profusely. And he asked his buddies, come with me, pray with me, stay with me. And it says he took, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Man, if Jesus, the Son of God, is sorrowful and deeply distressed, how much do we need to give ourselves permission to fill our sorrow and to fill our distress? And he says, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. I mean, he feels like he's going to die. It's so painful. Have any of you had something happen in your life where you're like, Oh, this is too much. I just feel like I'm going to die. This is so hard. Well, that's exactly how Jesus felt. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and he fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. The dudes had fell asleep. How many of us, when we're going through a hard time, we just want to crawl into our warm, snuggly little bed and put the covers over our head and hope that I'll pop out in a few days and everything will be better? And I'm, and I'm not, I'm an advocate for when you're tired, go to bed, <laughs> right? Because we don't do good when we're hungry, lonely, angry, or tired. So if you're tired, take a nap or go to bed. But we're still going to have to deal with your sorrows, We're still going to have to deal with your disappointments. We're still going to have to deal with the fact that things aren't going the way you wanted them to go. Right? You can't bury it. But the disciples fell asleep on them. And he says, what? What? I mean, talk about being disappointed by his buddies, right? Could you not watch with me one hour? I think Jesus had to grieve in that moment that his friends were letting him down. He had so been there for them, and now he needed them to be there for him, and they were sleeping. Have you ever felt that with some of your friends? Maybe your spouse? Yeah, because we humans are good at disappointing each other. We have to deal with the negative realities of life. And if you're married to a human being, there are going to be great things about this person, and there are going to be some things that aren't great, and that is life. If you have a mom or a dad, there are some great things about your mother and your father, and there can be some really negative things about your mom and dad. If you have a boss, there will be great things about your boss and negative things about your boss. That is life, right? And so when we can learn how to grieve our negative realities, we can go, oh yeah, he's great this way, and here's the way he disappoints me. And I can live with that because I've grieved that fact. I can live in reality because I'm dealing with realities. You don't have to live in la-la land. So he says to them, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't our flesh weak? Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So if we put the graphic back up, what we see Jesus doing here is he grieved profoundly and then he could surrender. 
Several years ago, it's probably been about seven years ago now, or maybe less, our second son, Joshua, had married a beautiful girl out of college. He put her through medical school. He helped her go through her surgery rotation. She became a surgeon. She was successful. And she came home one day and said to him, Hey, Josh, if I wanted to be married, I'd be married to you. But I don't want to be married anymore. And I don't want to have children. And I want to work 130 hours at the hospital. I love what I do. And if I leave, people die. She kind of got that whole God complex thing going on. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Where we think if, if I don't intervene, this person won't make it without me. Right? After all, I live to give. It's kind of what we call codependency and unhealthiness. And she said, so I don't want to be married anymore. Josh, we had watched him be such a faithful husband to her. He worked so hard to help her dreams come true. And then the minute her dreams came true, she dumped him. Right? So we grieved with our son. And I said, son, listen. Grieve hard. Grieve hard. Get this sorrow up and out so that someday you can let good in. Because if we don't get the bad out, people, it's like carrying around a low-grade fever, or it's like we're carrying around a virus, and eventually we spread it onto others. But if we will grieve hard like Jesus did, then we can surrender and say, God, like my son had to say, God, I can't fix this marriage. God, I have no control over what she's chosen to do. God, I don't know what my future's going to look like. And so he grieved hard, and then he surrendered, and then he forgave her, just like Jesus did. When Jesus hung from that cross, he'd been stripped naked. He had a, a, a crown of thorns pierced into his skull. He'd been spit on. He'd been whipped. He'd been hung on this cross with spikes in his hands and spikes in his feet. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, Josh could forgive his wife because he knew that she was making decisions that she hadn't thought about how is this going to impact Josh she wasn't thinking that through it's like when my dad drank and then came home and went into a rage he wasn't thinking oh how is this going to impact my children was he when people hurt us they aren't thinking it all the way through are they they aren't thinking it through from the beginning to the end when I say something unkind to my husband, I'm not thinking it through. Typically, my brain has gone into fear central, and my smart brain has shut down, and my stupid brain is talking. Any of you know what I'm talking about? Any of you ever go into stupid brain? Right? And so this is what couples do. They, they fight, and then their smart brain shuts down, their stupid brain takes over. They say your IQ drops 30, 30 points at this point. I don't know about you, but if my IQ drops 30 points, I am in trouble. 
right? My smart brain is not operating this machine at all. It has left the premises, and my stupid brain is now in charge. And good things don't happen when my stupid brain is in charge. Right? So here's the thing that we typically do with forgiveness. If somebody says something like, well, my dad was abusive, we say, well, you need to forgive him. Right? How many times have you all heard that? Yeah? Well, you just, you just need to forgive her. You need to forgive him. You need to let that go. Why haven't you let that go? What's wrong with you? And we really feel shame, don't we? Because we want to let things go. I know for ten, my, during my 20s, every time I'd have a bad memory of my dad come up, I'd say, I forgive him, I forgive him, I forgive him. Because that's what the church had taught me. But I don't think we, the church, had stopped and looked deep enough into the scriptures. I don't think we'd really examined the life of Jesus. Because before Jesus forgave, he grieved profoundly. So if forgiveness hasn't worked for you, I think this is probably why you haven't done your grief work. Sometimes my clients will come in and say, I know I need to forgive them. I'll say, time out, whoa, whoa, whoa. We'll get there, but first let's do your grief work. Tell me about the bad and the sad and you're mad and you're disappointed. Tell me about how your heart got broken. Tell me about what went wrong for you. And let's grieve that profoundly. Because once you get the bad out, then you can surrender it and stop trying to control it and fix it and make it better. Which we humans love to do, by the way. Then we can let it go. And like our son did, then he can move into a place of gratitude. And when you have a grateful brain, you have a happy brain. Gratitude changes our attitude, literally. Sometimes I'll force myself to be grateful, right? Because I'm like, I have a lot to be grateful for, but sometimes I'm just not feeling grateful. Any of you like me? You know? I'm just like, I'm, not just, I'm just not feeling it right now. And so I'll start practicing gratitude as a choice because I know it will help my brain. And so Josh then could move into a place of gratitude, and then guess what? Then he attracted a woman with a happy brain. And now he's happily married to a beautiful woman with two beautiful, beautiful children. And our son is just so joyful because he grieved hard. And grieving recalibrates you. So then you can move into love. It's like Jesus went through the grief and the sorrow and had to surrender. He bargained with God. I bet Butch did some bargaining with God. God, if you'll save my wife's life, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do this. We all bargain, don't we? Jesus was like, God, you got plan B? I, I, I'm, I'm into plan B, you know. But nevertheless, your will be done, not my will. And then he gave up his life because he loves us, right? So I just want to encourage you to not deny the things you're sad about, not deny the things that are hard for you, not deny that your heart hurts, but to actually move into a place like I think David did, where he was so honest with God. He was so honest and transparent with God. He would dump it out, wouldn't he? 
He would like express his anger, his frustration, his disgust. He would tell God it, it all. And I think that's why. I've always wondered, God, why did you call David a man after my own heart? I think this is why. Because David kept his heart alive. David didn't shut down his heart, which we can so do so easily. We humans, when we start shutting down these negative emotions, guess what happens? We shut down our positive emotions. Because our emotions are two sides of the same coin. And if you shut down, you're mad, you're sad, you're bad, you're hurt, you're, you're disappointment, then you are shutting down your joy. And so David, if you read the Psalms, one moment he's pouring out his just all the bad yuck. He's just getting it up and out. And then the next chapter, he is rejoicing because he got the bad out. So I'm going to finish. I'm going to close with this. It's Psalms 40. And David says, if I can find it. (laughs) I have it marked, I promise. Open up Bible. There we go. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. You know, usually for any of us to get in touch with our grief, we've got to sit quiet for a little bit. You've got to get out your journal and just kind of start priming the pump. I feel sad about, or I think I feel sad about, I don't even know what I feel. Because most of us aren't that aware of what we're feeling. So we've got to start somewhere. When my dad died, he and I had restored our relationship. And for three years, I had a really sweet dad. It was awesome. And he died. And I'm like, oh, I'm sad. But I got this lung infection. And my doctor said, have you had a loss recently? And I said, yeah, how'd you know? And she goes, well, your body will usually find a way to express your grief if you don't give it a voice, right? So she said, I want you to go home. I want you to get your journal. I want you to start writing about how sad you are. I want you to write about, even if you're mad at your dad, if you've got old, old stuff with him, just write it all out. And so I sat there. I didn't feel a thing when I started doing it. Probably 10 minutes in, the, probably five minutes in, knowing me, the tears started coming. And then 20 minutes, I'd work through my grief. And it recalibrated my heart. And then I was okay. And then my lungs cleared up. And then I could breathe again. And then I was okay. If you don't give your, vo- your grief a voice, it will find one. That's why God gave you this voice. Because he doesn't want you, your body sick. He doesn't want your emotions sick. He doesn't want your relationship sick. He wants you to know that if you'll do what David did, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. Can you picture that? God just started moving in towards him. He inclined to me. God loves your honesty. He knows it all anyway. Even though we try to, like, God, you know, I'm trying to make it all look good for you. And he's like, people, really? I know it all. It's okay. You can just tell me. And he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit. Are any of you in a pit today? Are any of you in a hard place? Are any of you in a dark spot? Then pour it out because you are just as valuable as David. He loves you. He is for you. He wants to do for you what he did for David. So David cried out to him, told him all about it.
God inclined his ear towards him. And then God lifted David out of that pit. He took his feet out of that miry clay. You know how it feels when your feet are stuck in miry clay? You're just like, you're just stuck in the gunk. You're stuck in the mud. And you're just stuck. And you're like, I can't get myself out. Here's the problem with us humans. We try so hard to get ourselves out. And God's like, sweetheart, you don't have to get yourself out. Tell me all about it. I'm going to lean in towards you. As you grieve, I'm going to pour my comfort on you so you don't have to eat more mashed potatoes and ice cream. And then I'm going to pull you out of that pit and I'm going to set your feet on the rock. And he says, then, not only did he do all that for me, He has put a new song in my mouth. Isn't that great? Sometimes when we're in a hard season or a hard place, man, we need a new song in our heart, right? We need a song in our heart which represents joy and laughter and we can sing again. So I just want to invite you to stand up. And I want our worship team, if they're still around, to come on up. And thank you, you're the best, this beautiful lady with a beautiful voice. Um, And I want you to put your hand on your heart, because I want to help you kind of tune into your own heart. And guys, you have hearts too, you know. I know sometimes the world tells you that you don't, because this would happen to little boys. They They were told at really young ages to get over it, dry up breaks my heart. I have four sons. I hate that men are told that. Get over it, dry up. Right? That's not cool. It's not cool. Men have hearts just like women do. Okay? So just close your eyes, and I want you to just tune in to your heart. Ask, let's ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, is there any resentment in my heart? Because, man, it can just sneak in there. Is there any bitterness, any place where I've let bitterness grow, take root? God, you warn us about that root of bitterness, and God, it's just started growing its own roots in my heart. And now my heart just feels a little hard. Lord, is there anything I need to grieve, any sad stuff I've just been carrying around? Maybe for 50 years I've carried something sad around. I've never graved it. Maybe something sad happened to me when I was six years old and I've never told anybody. I've just kept it all buried inside of me hoping it would go away if I ignored it. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you reveal any of those places in our hearts. Because we live in a fallen, broken world and it just creeps in easy. And before we know it, So we just want to stop and tune in. Holy Spirit, what do you want to say in this moment? Give us ears to hear. What do you want to show us in this moment? Give us eyes to see. And now, God, you say that you are the God of all grace. You are the God of all comfort. So I pray that your comfort would come on these people. 
that we would sense your presence, that you are near. Your word says that you are near to the brokenhearted. You are near. So just draw near now, Lord. I pray that people would just physically feel your arms around them and that you are inclining towards them and you are whispering into their hearts, I am here for you. You are never, never, never alone in this hard place and I will lift you from this pit. Tell me all about it. Thank you, God. Now if the prayer team would just come forward. Because here's the thing. Jesus didn't go to the garden by himself. And even though his friends kind of flaked out on him, there's some people here who aren't going to go to sleep on you. (laughs) They're going to pray for you, right? They're going to love on you. And whatever you came into this place with that's hard or heavy or where you feel like your feet are stuck in the mud, let somebody pray for you. There is no problem too small or too big that does not matter to God. He counts the hairs on your head. So if you're standing there going, well, my problems are small. I'm not like Butch. I didn't lose my wife a few weeks ago. Your problems still matter to God. Right? So don't leave with the same burdens you came in with. Let somebody pray for you. Grab somebody next to you. Don't do life alone. God gave us the family of God so we would no longer be alone. Okay? So I love you all. It has been such a joy to be here. And if you need prayer for any reason, come on up and get prayer. And for those of you who don't, if you just want to kind of quietly exit and then say your hellos and hugs out there, it's been a joy to be with you. And I love you all. And God bless you. Thank you.